the last couple of weeks we've been talking about uh, humanism. I'm wondering if this last uh, few days you've been listening to the television and the radio to uh, see if you can catch the lie. Have you been doing that? I have uh, heard a couple of interesting news reports in the last 24 hours, as a matter of fact. One of them stated that the students at a certain high school in Houston, Texas, can no longer sing the school song because in the school song it says, God bless our school. And a court judge in Houston has ruled that that's an unconstitutional song and therefore, though it can be played by the band, the students are not allowed any longer to sing their school song. It violates the separation of church and state. Graduates from a certain college in uh, the East, a Christian college, which uh, prepares young men and women to teach at the secondary educational level, have been instructed how to teach uh, biology from a creationist viewpoint. They've also been taught how to teach evolution, but of course they will teach that evolution is uh, fallacious, that it's not a true theory. Therefore, a panel from the State Department of Education that was reviewing that college has stated that they will not recommend that those teachers be certified to teach biology because they will not teach that evolution is true. Keep your ears open this week and you will pick up the lie of humanism as is being spread through the media in so many subtle ways. We are looking at Romans chapter 1 as we have talked about humanism and the lie. Today we're going to go back to the text. We took a couple of weeks out to study the theme of humanism. But today we're going to look at verses 24 through 32. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And that is the phrase there that started our, our thematic study of what the lie is in the Bible. It is that man can live independently of God. He is self-sufficient and able to choose for himself what right and wrong are. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust or literally were burnt, they burned themselves out with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. What an amazing paragraph in light of our society today, wouldn't you agree? Our subject today is when God gives up. Now, God does not give up in the human sense of that thought out of weariness or frustration or fear. But he gives up or he gives over in a judicial sense. Three times you'll notice in our text it says God gave them over. It is an act of God, this giving up or giving over a society. Now, we see it used a couple of other times in the Bible, this very same thought. Back in Psalm 81, it is used of Israel. And there in the Psalm, verses 11 and 12 state, But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. What a judgment from God that he would allow any of us to do that. But you'll notice that again, Israel sinned against the light that she had. Deliberate rebellion, refusal to obey, led God to give them over to their own stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. That's judgment. It is used again in the book of Acts regarding God's Old Testament people. In Acts chapter 7, the magnificent sermon by Stephen before he was executed. And in this chapter, he outlines for us the history of the nation of Israel. We're going to break into the middle of that in verse 41, which says, That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. You see, they turned from the worship of the true God to what? To idols. The very same process as we see in Romans 1 when it refers to primarily there the pagan Gentiles. And it goes on to say, But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. And this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets and he quotes from the Old Testament. And so again we see God judging a nation because of its refusal to obey the light that it had. He gave them over to idolatry. In this case it was the worship of the heavenly bodies or astrology. When men reject the light that God gives to them, 
His judgment is absolutely certain. He will give them over. The idea in that means that he gives them over to another's power or use. It means that he takes his hands off and allows the willful rejection of himself to produce its own natural results. The divine restraint of God upon mankind's sin is lifted. That is God's judgment. And therefore that sin begins to produce its own wickedness and its own judgment. William Newell in his commentary on Romans, which is one of those, by the way, that we uh, offer to you in the bookstore. It's a very fine commentary written about 50 years ago, and you can see that in some of the comments that he makes. He was concerned about the wickedness back in the 30s. If he were alive today, he'd have to rewrite his commentary in some spots because of the degeneration in our society in the last 50 years. But Newell says this, Notice that when man is delivered from divine restraint, the lusts of his heart plunge him into ever deeper bodily uncleanness and bodily vileness. History backs up this fact with terrible relentlessness. I believe that this is the wrath of God spoken of in verse 18 when it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. It does not say God's wrath will be revealed, though it will be in its consummating sense in hell, in the eternal lake of fire. But it says that God's wrath is right now being revealed in the process of time, in history, in the outflow of human events. God's wrath is now being revealed as a thought, and I believe that what he says later in the chapter defines that. It is God lifting his divine restraint over man's sin, and then the results that take place serve as the God's judgment upon man. As we review the degenerate and wicked condition of man separated from God, let none of us think of himself self-righteously. Because, folks, this is the same family, the same race that we're all born into. These verses are perhaps some of the most terrible in all the Bible. They describe mankind abandoned by God. I believe that these verses refer to that civilization before the flood, as I've said before, but these verses can well apply to any civilization since then. For every civilization goes the same way when it turns against God. There is no mistaking it that you see our civilization, the Western civilization, in these verses today. Our text gives us insight to help us understand the righteous judgment of God upon such as these. Notice, first of all, why God gives up, verses 24 through 27. It is because men knew God, but as he says in earlier verses, they suppressed the truth and they rejected the knowledge of God. So in verse 21, we see, although they knew God, they glorified him not as God. 
nor gave thanks to him. Those are the first two steps away from God. Step three, their, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. And so we see there are six steps away from God. Why does God give up on a society, upon a civilization? Because it transgresses against him and takes these six steps. We today are a nation of idolaters. We are worshiping the most wicked idol of all, and that is ourselves. And the name of the religion is humanism. Man who turns from God always is an idolater, whether that idol be the state, or whether it be a philosophy, or an idol of wood, or stone, or money, or material possessions, or oneself. A man who turns from God always becomes an idolater. Man is a religious creature. And when God is removed from his rightful place, something must fill it. Regarding idolatry, there are a couple of important statements. First, a man will always become like what he worships. So if a man worships money, he'll become greedy. If a man worships himself, he'll become arrogant, and so on. Of course, that's true of the Christian, too. What we worship, we become like. If we worship to God, then we become like the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that I would note about idolatry is that it inevitably leads to immorality. Now, we see that in our text. You would perhaps have noticed that there were three times that the idea of exchanging something was mentioned here. It's mentioned in verse 23 where it says, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. That's the first exchange. The second one is in verse 25, and this is uh, a step down. It says, they exchange the truth of God for the lie. And then in verse 26, we see the final one. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And then it says, in the same way, the men also. And so natural sexual desires are exchanged for unnatural sexual desires. Those steps are inevitably found in idolatry. And you'll notice it says, because of this, God gave them to, over to shameful lusts. Something that is honorable is something that gets its proper respect. Shameful is just the opposite of honorable. So what it means is that the lust controlling these here caused them to improperly value the sacredness of the body and thus to use it in an inappropriate manner in a way that God does not intend. And so there's this perversion, this twisting, the exchange of God for idols, the truth for the lie, for what God has created to be beautiful and an expression of love in a consummating sense, mankind exchanges for that which is unnatural and shameful. That's why God gives up. As I've said three times, it says God gave them over 
in verse 24, it seems to mean that God gave them over to cultic immorality. In other words, to immorality mingled together with their religion. You'll notice it's in the same context with idolatry that he says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Particularly in that day, there was immorality in connection with the cult, the, the, the cultic pagan worship. There were fertility cults, for example, in which sexual relations with temple prostitutes were thought to encourage the gods to do the same, and therefore to cause an increase in the families and crops and herds of the mortals. Paul wrote this book of Romans from the city of Corinth, and there they worshipped Aphrodite or Venus, the false goddess. And part of the worship of her were these temple prostitutes. And that's the reason that it was a part of it. It was a fertility cult, and they felt that in this way they would encourage the gods to give them increase. No wonder it says that their foolish hearts were darkened. God gave them over to that kind of immorality. And then, in verse 26, another step. God gives them over to perversion and general immorality. D.H. Gifford has said, The sin against God's nature entails as its penalty sin against one's own nature. In other words, they turned away from the true God, and here they turn away from the true use of, of the creative ability that God has given us sexually to that which is false and unnatural and perverted. And it goes on to state here in verse 27 that they received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. That suggests that the punishment is in keeping with the offense. E.F. Harrison states in his commentary, sexual deviation contains in itself a recompense, a punishment for the abandonment of God and his ways. And I believe that can be illustrated well. For example, there are some unique diseases and viruses associated primarily with immorality and particularly with sodomy. VD, in its most recent form, is almost uncontrollable, except by the new penicillin that man has put out to try to control it. In recent days, there's been a lot of talk about the new herpes virus, which is associated primarily with immorality, but not entirely. You see, God has built into these very sins their own judgment. And though man may attempt to control them, that is, these diseases, he only controls them for a while until a new strain that's more powerful appears and man's medicine no longer controls and that will keep happening. Man will never be able to control these judgments from God. Of course, in addition, uh, there are certain kinds of cancers that appear predominantly with those who practice this kind of immorality. So God has built right into the very physical makeup of things judgment when man becomes perverse and immoral and 
in the sense that these verses are talking about. And then this does not even speak of the emotional and mental problems that come because of these sins. And again, I repeat, let no one tell you that these sins are committed because people have no control over themselves. They're just born that way. That's an attempt for people to escape responsibility. But this kind of perversion is a choice. It is a choice that's made more natural because men turn away from God. But it nonetheless is a choice. And connected with it is its own judgment. And then finally in verse 28 it says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And the idea is that eventually men are unable to distinguish between right and wrong. They lose that sense of conscience, that ability to discern what is correct and what is perverse. And so that after a while, everything becomes the same. Wiest, in his commentary on Romans, says, The human race put God to the test for the purpose of approving him should he meet the specifications which he laid down for a God who would be to his liking. And finding that he did not meet those specifications, the human race refused to approve him as God to be worshipped or to have him in its knowledge. The human race put God on trial, and because it rejected him after trial, God gave it a trialless mind, a depraved mind, in other words, one incapable of discharging the functions of a mind with respect to the things of salvation. Virtually they pronounced the true God disapproved and would have none of him, and he gave them up to a disapproved mind, a mind which is no mind and cannot, distinct, cannot uh, discharge the functions of one, a mind in which the divine distinctions of right and wrong are confused and lost, so that God's condemnation cannot but fall on it at last. And again, a statement by Newell, in Newell's commentary by uh, Dr. Alford, because they reprobated the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That's why God gives up. That's why God gives over. Because men turn away from him. Now let's think in verses 28 through 32 about this idea of when God gives up. I think it's important to understand that not until a certain point of reprobation is reached does God give up. God is a patient and merciful God. He is long-suffering towards sinners. It is not until a certain point is reached, I suppose, which only he knows, that it then becomes too late. I speak here in the sense of a society, not of the individual. I do think there's a point at which the individual's salvation is um, impossible because he hardens his heart and hardens his heart against God until it's too late. But here we're thinking of God's turning over of a civilization, of a society to judgment. When that certain point comes, God is finished with it. 
I think we can illustrate the fact that God is patient. If you'll turn back to Genesis with me, to chapter 15. As you're turning there, I would remind you that uh, in those days before the flood, God was patient. He sent uh, Enoch among them to preach. God was patient for them an extra 120 years, long-suffering with them, and then finally judgment came. They went beyond the point of no return. But in Genesis chapter 15, God is speaking to Abraham. He talks to him about the land that he's going to give to his descendants. It says in verse 13 of Genesis 15, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Where was that? Egypt, right. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Read the early chapters of, of Exodus to see this fulfilled. You, however, he says to Abraham, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. And notice why God does not give it to Abraham now, at least in part. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God was patient with that pagan group, the Amorites. He was long-suffering toward them. At this point that he speaks to Abraham, the point of no return had not been reached. And so God says, in four generations, the time will be up, and I will allow you to come in and massacre them, which they did when they conquered the land. And they did that by the command of God. We might think that the Amorites deserved judgment at that time. And in a sense, they did. The pagan religions of the Amorites were disgraceful and shameful. Not only was there immorality involved, but they actually had human sacrifices. You can go to Israel today and they will point out at least one altar on which humans were sacrificed thousands of years ago by these people that were there in Abraham's day. Not only did they offer human sacrifices, but they offered their babies up in worship to their gods. And we wonder why God's patience waited. But I tell you something, before we judge the Amorites too strongly, we had better look upon the pagan altars of our own society and see the millions of babies that have been offered up on the altar of humanism since the Supreme Court decision in 1973. We have human sacrifice in our society, too. The bodies are not found on altars. They're found in garbage bags, be thrown on trash heaps and burned. We are as guilty as the Amorites ever were of false religion and human sacrifice is a part of that. And just as surely as God's judgment ultimately came upon the Amorites... So God's judgment will come upon our society. And I believe that we are seeing the beginning of that today in the increase of immorality and in 
such practical things as our economic distress. God does ultimately give up on a civilization. What we have pictured here in Romans chapter 1 is the chaos in a society due to man's rejection of God and God's rejection of man. It begins with a condition of the mind. Notice in verse 28, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So it begins with a mindset that cancels out God. This verse, as well as some others in the Bible, prove to us that sins are not the result of environmental conditions or poverty, but sins result because of the darkness of the inner man. It's out of that inner darkness that all the vile things in our society comes from. It begins with a mindset, with the inner person, and then it proceeds to actions which are not fitting in God's universe, especially not fitted to man who's created in the image of God. And notice that he says that this kind of a society that God gives up on is filled with these things. There's no limit to it. Now what he says does not mean that Everybody does all of these things, but that all do some of them and that all are capable of all. He begins to list in verse 29, 21 specific sins that are found in a society that rejects God and which God rejects. The first word is wickedness. That refers to injustice. It's like the unjust decisions that a trial judge would make, for example. Or it means self-centeredness. It is the claiming of one's own rights and refusal to allow the rights of others. It is absence of justice. Because man is wicked, laws in society are essential to counteract and to contain the wickedness so that disruption in society is minimized. But when the laws begin to be diminished and the effect of them, the penalty of them, begins to be diminished, the man's wickedness begins to be expressed more. And that's what we're seeing these days. The second word is evil. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil. The word here is that which is vile and sinister. It's the word that describes Satan in Ephesians chapter 6, when it calls him the evil one, sinister. And then the word greed. That is the urge for acquiring more. The claiming of more than is one's due. Gaining from another's loss. It means to defraud and to take advantage of other people. And then the word depravity. Dr. Trench says that it is the evil habit of mind. In other words, it is a mindset that is evil, and it attributes evil motives to others without a cause. It simply leads into others' actions that which is evil. Jefferson wrote to Madison this interesting statement. Malice will always find bad motives for good actions. That's what he's talking about here. Seeing evil everywhere. 
reading into even good actions, bad motives. We had a phone call yesterday from someone who was quite upset about a person from this church coming to her door to deliver any literature about our church and accused us of all kinds of evil motives in that. Well, that's the kind of thing he's talking about here, depravity. And then he says they're full of envy. Envy is hate that is aimed at those who possess what we do not have. It was out of envy that the Lord Jesus Christ was turned over to Pilate for crucifixion. Pilate knew that. The Jews hated him. They were envious of his power, of his position with the people. The Oxford Dictionary says, it is to feel displeasure and ill will at at the superiority of another in happiness, success, reputation, or the possession of anything desirable. That's envy. And then full of murder. A society that turns from God is one that is full of murder. That means to take the life of another, and that often goes with envy, doesn't it? You remember the first murder that took place? Envy was a part of that, wasn't it? And then full of strife, that is wrangling or contention. No peace. People just constantly at one another. Deceit is the next word. Literally, it means to bait a fish. So much of our commerce and our advertising these days is based upon this concept of baiting, the old bait-and-switch plan used by some uh, people. Advertising is very sophisticated in our day so that our subliminal thoughts are affected by it. In very subtle ways, advertisers get their message through. I noticed this last week in one advertisement for independent insurance agents. And uh, the gentleman who does the commercial, while he is talking, has a pair of handcuffs. And uh, by what he does with the handcuffs, suggest to you subconsciously that one who is not an independent insurance agent is locked in to his company and can't give you the best deal from, the, from another company. And that happens all the time in advertising. The idea of deceit here is more than just trickery. It's the idea that we've just talked about. And then malice is the next word. Full of malice. The idea is bad character. Depravity of heart and life. <clears throat> then in verse, in the last part of verse 29, he says, There are gossips. To gossip means to speak in one's ear, literally. The idea here is secret slander, the peddling of evil reports. Christendom said, Slander is worse than cannibalism. It's very similar to cannibalism. Jeremy Taylor, great preacher, one of his sermons said, Slander renders in pieces the very heart and vital parts of charity. It makes an evil man party and witness and judge and executioner of the innocent. If there's anything that we ought to flee from, it is these kinds of sins. He goes on to talk about slanderers, and here the idea is not secret slander, but open slander. 
those who speak out blatantly against others. It is the public flaunting of false charges. So often I fear that the media gets caught up in this, in accusing, convicting, and sometimes even executing a person before he's found guilty by the courts. And then the word God-haters, a word that is used only here in the New Testament. Barnhouse says it means to be hateful to God, but you get the idea. Instead of loving God, it's hating God. Insolent. It means to take pleasure in insulting. It's to shamefully do another person wrong. This is the real Don Rickles, this kind of a person. They say he's a nice guy. But you've heard him. And there are people, you know, in, around where you work that are just like him in real life, aren't they? Constantly insulting others. And then the word arrogant, haughty in attitude, despising others, treating them with contempt. And then boastful or braggarts. The idea here is like a, a wagon that rattles along because it's empty. Our society is so filled with this kind of thing, people who brag and boast about what they can do. He says they invent ways of doing evil. Again, Barnhouse says, man turns to evil even the inventions that are full of potential good. And that's true. And when man is finished with one toy, he invents another by which to fulfill his evil. And then he says they disobey their parents. The idea here means that they are unable to be persuaded by them. They reject parental authority. It is rebellion against any kind of control. The same thought is used in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in describing the last days, the attitude toward parents. And I tell you, humanism encourages and promotes this idea. It says they are senseless. The word means that they are undiscerning morally. They have no spiritual insight or appreciation. Then it says they are faithless, number 19. They are bound by no promise. The wickedness that does not intend to carry out its pledged words is in view here. It is the breaking of promises and of confidences. There are people who will use a credit card to pay for something and yet never intend to pay for it with cash, to pay the credit card company back or to pay that store. It is the breaking of commitments that are made, faithless. And then he says they're heartless. And the idea is they're without a natural affection, particularly for the family in that sense a desertion of love and care and concern. And finally, he says, they are ruthless. It means without mercy. There's no tenderness, no compassion, hard-heartedness, cruelty, abuse. All of these things are in view here. Harrison says, instead of repenting of their own misdeeds and seeking to deter others, they promoted wrongdoing by encouraging it in their fellows, allying themselves with wanton sinners in defiant revolt 
against a righteous God. You'll notice in verse 32 it says that although they know God's righteous decree that those who do things like this deserve death, they continue to do them and they approve those who practice them. And so you see three things there. First, they know what they're doing is wrong. Secondly, nonetheless, they continue to do them. And finally, they also approve those who do the same things. Warren Worsby, in uh, his little book on Romans, another one of those that we have available called Be Right, says, How far man fell. He began glorifying God, but ended exchanging that glory for idols. He began knowing God, but ended refusing to keep the knowledge of God in his mind and heart. He began as the highest of God's creatures, made in the image of God, but he ended lower than the beasts and insects because he worshipped them as his gods. The verdict, they are without excuse. And that is God's verdict of man. No excuse. When does God give up? When that point is reached which only he knows that a society has gone too far. Has our society reached that point yet? I can't say. I don't know. But this I do know. That the whole process is seen in our society as it is revealed in this chapter. Everything is here that God says was in that other generation he refers to when judgment came. And he says, they are without excuse, they are worthy of judgment. He says, therefore, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against them. My friend, if you're here today in Jesus Christ, let me tell you that we have no reason for thinking ourselves to be so far above these others. Because of the sin that lives in us, we are capable of any of these things. But by the grace of God, we are saved from that. And instead of now being under God's condemnation, we are under God's blessing. Instead of being lost and darkened in sin, we have the light of Jesus Christ and his eternal life. We have so very much for which to be grateful. We have so very much for which we can rejoice and thank God, and we should. But since we live in a society like this, we have all the more responsibility for being faithful to Christ And as Paul said there in verse 16, not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is God's power. Let us this week be faithful declarers of that message. And to be burdened for those who are lost in the darkness and the degeneration that we see in these verses. Let's not be conceited and pompous and wash our hands of these people. But let us with burdened hearts out of love as extensions of God's long-suffering and his mercy reach out to people we work with and we live with in our neighborhoods and let us share with them the message by which they can be saved from this idolatry that will lead to God's condemnation.
If you're here today without Jesus Christ, then my word to you is to flee from God's wrath. God's wrath that is coming upon you right now in this life and God's wrath that is to come. Be saved from it. Be rescued from it by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these verses, they are terrible in their impact. They leave us burdened and heavy, not only because of the content of the verses, but because as we compare what is said in your revelation to the the world we live in, we see our world described here. We're concerned because judgment is deserved. We're concerned because your wrath is now being poured out upon our civilization. God, we would dare pray that there may be a spiritual awakening, a genuine and deep moving of the Spirit of God in our age, which will see us spared from the judgment which our civilization deserves. Lord, it has been over a hundred years since we've had this kind of a moving in our nation. Oh, how we plead with you that we may see it again. Lord, out of your long suffering and your mercy, deal with us and bring us to repentance. I pray that you will do a work in us here in Grace Church, in the lives of each of us, that will make us on the cutting edge of the spiritual movement. Give us the courage and compassion to speak out for the truth and to seek to win the lost. God, except you do this work, our nation will fall, and the freedom we now enjoy will be lost. There will be no excuse if you choose to do that. It will be a righteous judgment. But we plead with you today for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand.